I'd like to welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in God's Word to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. Not 10b, first half of 10. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10a. Let's hear God's word together. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we give thanks for the light of your word. Without it, we would stumble in the darkness. We would falter and fail. Thank you, Lord, that though Our eyes are closed and our ears can't hear the truth through the work of the Holy Spirit. You've opened our eyes and our ears to hear and receive your word, that we might know salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that the truth of your word would remain pure in our midst here at CBC. Uh, We pray that you would protect us as a church, protect the leadership and its members from doctrinal deviation and error. We pray, Lord, that the truth about Jesus would always be faithfully, comprehensively, truly taught here. And not just here, Lord, but we pray for the other uh, faithful congregations that are gathering this morning in Phoenix and all over uh, the world and in in our country. And uh, we pray for the local churches around us, Lord, that the word would be faithfully and purely taught there this morning. Uh, But we ask, Lord, that your truth would not just illuminate our intellects, but shape the whole course of our lives. Uh, Grant us in our speaking and desiring and acting to reflect your truth in every way. Father, we pray for your blessing on this word this morning, that it would bring joy and encouragement and rebuke where necessary, and that it would accomplish all of your good purposes in our midst. For your glory and our good, amen. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 describes the church as the pillar and buttress of truth. It is a support in this dark world, a pillar for the truth. 
And the church is an interesting community in that the people in that community are connected to one another, not on the basis of a shared background or culture um, or a set of interest, but on the basis of a shared commitment to the truth of God about our Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that unites us this morning? Why are we here together? Uh, it's not that we have had the same upbringing or the same interests. It's that we acknowledge and we confess one Lord, the truth about Jesus Christ. That's what unites us. It's that truth that we profess. It's that truth that we draw life and encouragement from. It's that truth that we witness to in the world that others might come to know the salvation that we have experienced through Jesus. Uh, we are a community defined by a commitment to the truth about Jesus Christ. And as the truth goes, as the truth stands or falls, so goes the church. Now, if that's true, you can understand why false teachers and false teaching, which distorts, destroys, and undermines the truth, why they are so detrimental to the health of God's people, to the health of the church as a whole, and to the lives of individual believers. False teachers have been around since even before the, the time of the apostles, as we will see. They exist today. They existed in Peter's day. And he is writing to the original Christian audience to warn them about false teachers, to shield them from the assault that will uh, take place on their faith. I want us to notice three things as we look at this passage this morning. Number one, we will look at the characteristics of false teachers in verses one through three. Characteristics of false teachers. Number two, the certainty of God's judgment on them. The certainty of their destruction and that of the ungodly. God judges sinners. We need to say that perhaps more frequently than we do. Number three, God also rescues his people. He rescues his people. So first characteristic of false teachers, they will come. They will arise. Look at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So here, uh, Peter contrasts what he says about false teachers with what he has just said about true teachers. If you recall last week, um, Pastor Chuck Oltman took us through that passage and showed us that there were uh, prophets of God in Israel who spoke the truth according to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And you could trust that word because it was a word from God himself. Those were true prophets of the Lord. But in contrast with those true prophets, false prophets also arose among the people. They arose in Israel. Uh, Richard Bauckham is a New Testament scholar, uh, summarized these false prophets in this way. So they have three characteristics. One characteristic is that they're not authorized by God. Contrast to true prophets who have been sent by the Lord and are authorized to speak on his behalf, there has been no such authorization for false teachers or pro false prophets. Number two, false prophets often proclaim peace and security when the judgment of God is looming. The, the real prophets often declared, judgment is coming because of your covenant violations, O Israel. Whereas false prophets said, no, 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 life will be good. And that, by the way, is exactly what these false teachers that Peter writes about are doing. They're denying the second coming, but also the reality of judgment. And the third characteristic is that they will be destroyed. That's another characteristic that uh, Peter will attribute to them. 
So Peter says, what happened in Israel's history will happen again and again in the church also. Israel's history provides a pattern for the experience of the church. And as those arose in Israel who distorted the truth of God, so also, until Jesus comes back, there will be false teachers among you. It's a sobering reality, isn't it? Until Jesus comes back, not from the outside, from, in, from the midst of the church will arise those who seek to distort the truth of God. And therefore, we ought to be always vigilant. False teachers are agents of the devil, <clears throat> excuse me, are agents of the devil uh, who seek to make error seem plausible and truth foolish. Uh, they, they bring confusion, they unsettle believers by distorting the truth of God. Uh, they hiss at us the way the serpent hissed at Eve in the garden. What does he say to her? Did God really say? Notice it's not initially a flat-out denial. It's just creating doubts. Really, is that your interpretation of the command? Is that how you read that passage? You know, in the Greek it says, uh, right, doubt about God's word. Is that really God's word? And then, of course, there's a flat-out contradiction and denial. And so these people are going to be cropping up again and again among God's people. And again, it's, it's really sobering that they don't come from outside with a big red hat that says false teacher. They come from among you, and that seems to imply that there's a period of time when you would have looked at them like a fellow believer. They look like a believer. They, they profess faith in Jesus. There was nothing noticeably wrong. You could know these people potentially for years. They're likable. You trust them. And all of a sudden, they begin to say things that deny Christ and deny the gospel. But I think it's precisely that relational intimacy that you have that makes it so hard to spot them when they arise. Oh, I've known this person for years. Yeah, it doesn't sound quite right, but we go way back. Nice guy, nice gal. Um, we will be tempted to not really pay attention to the deviation that is happening because of the relational intimacy that has perhaps accrued over a long period of time. So they're hard to spot. I mean, it's one thing when you read on a page, false teachers, oh yeah, we've got to be on alert. It's another thing to look at a person in the face that you've known for years, and you realize this is one of them. This person that I've liked and have had coffee with and taken counsel with is one of them. And the only way that that will happen is if you have a dogged commitment to the gospel that is above even your commitment to the person, a dogged commitment to the truth. And you say, this person that I thought was a believer is denying the gospel. And along with a dogged commitment to the gospel and the truth, uh, you need to unflinchingly evaluate all things by the standard of that truth. doesn't matter what the ex your experience has been like, how nice they are. Does it align with Scripture? And if it doesn't, we need to harden ourselves to make the call that this may, in fact, be a false teacher, somebody who is beginning to deny the faith. 
It said that F- FBI agents are trained to spot counterfeit bills by knowing what authentic bills look like very, very well. They don't spend a lot of time looking at counterfeit bills, but they know what the real thing is like, and they put that real thing next to the counterfeit, and they can determine it's false. We need to be like that. He says, Peter says in chapter 119, that the word of God is like a lamp shining in a dark place. We need to hold that light to all things and evaluate all things by the light of the lamp of Scripture. This is especially the duty of pastors, incidentally, uh, to identify false teaching and false teachers uh, when they arise. Acts 20 makes this clear. Paul warns the Ephesian elders, there are evildoers that are going to come from your own midst, even from the leadership of the church. Be vigilant. They ought to be like those drug-sniffing dogs when they smell something nefarious, they bark. When pastors get a whiff of false teaching in the air, they need to bark. We all ought to be on our guard to be vigilant because they come from our midst. First thing we see, they will come, they have come, they'll continue coming, and they will often arise in the church, characteristic one. Uh, Characteristic two, they will bring in destructive heresies. The word destructive shows where their, their teaching takes you. It will finally destroy you spiritually. It will separate you from the life-giving presence of God forever, and it will subject you to his judgment for all time in hell. To embrace heresy, doctrinal error, is to lose the gospel, lose Christ, lose salvation. That's what's at stake. We need to consider this more than than we do. Uh, We live in a culture that doesn't value truth, Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. One opinion is as good as the other. But Scripture teaches that the stakes are actually much higher. Christians and the church is defined by truth. And if you lose the truth of the gospel, you lose Christ, you lose salvation, you lose everything. How does God save people? Through His Son, Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. But how do we know about those historical acts? Well, we know it through the message of the gospel, the good news. God imparts salvation through the message of the gospel. Lose that, and you've lost salvation. As Paul says in Romans 1, what's the power of God into salvation? The gospel, the message. Lose the message, and we are under the judgment of God. We are lost. So those are the stakes. It's not just good men you know, differing over trifles, differing over different ideas. No, no, no. Uh, You lose this truth, the saving truth about Jesus Christ, and you lose your soul. Now, let me add a qualification here. We need to be vigilant. We need to know the things of first importance in our faith and be able to spot error. That's absolutely true. We see what the stakes are, that you embrace false teaching. You can lose your soul. That's all true. Let me, just, let me just balance the scales a little bit, though, and point out that we should also be careful of heresy hunting. This would be an error on the opposite extreme. Every interpretive difference you know, among God's people is, inter- is understood as, man, this is heresy. Um, we need to be careful about that. We need to not only the truth, know the truth, but have a hierarchy of what truths are of first importance, second importance, third importance. So Trinity would be right at the top. You deny the Trinity, 
you've taken the heart out of the Christian faith. You deny the deity of Jesus Christ, not a Christian. Deny that salvation is a gift of God by grace and not by works. You've lost the gospel, right? First importance. Second importance, things like baptism. There are different Christians who differ over the the mode and manner of baptism. And so we can disagree, have significant disagreements, but we're still in the household of God. And there's like third order issue, issues. um, I would put here details concerning the second coming of Jesus. Certainly you need to affirm the second coming of Jesus. That, That would be like first order. That's part of what the heretics are denying. Jesus is coming back bodily. You'll see him. There's a resurrection. All that is first order stuff. But the precise details, when, how, what, uh, we can quibble over our interpretation of some of those less clear passage, passages and you know, charitably disagree with one another, and that's fine. So we want to be careful about not seeing error or heresy, a denial of the faith on the one hand, but also we want to avoid making false accusations. That's number two. Their teaching will be destructive. Three, their teaching will deny the master who bought them. How, how does their teaching deny the master? Well, number one, uh, if, if you read Second Peter, they deny the second coming of Jesus Christ and they deny the fact that God will judge the wicked. Very contemporary, these false teachers. No second coming, no final judgment on the wicked. So there is a doctrinal deviation. They're rejecting an essential truth about Jesus. But it's also important to recognize that they are denying him also through their lifestyle. They're not just speaking lies, they're living lies. The context makes clear, it refers to their sensuality, their sexual immorality, their hedonism, their their lust for pleasure and money. They're denying him through false teaching but also through a wicked way of life that doesn't accord with the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that. It's a sobering uh, fact that you can deny Jesus through doctrinal error and through unrepentant, immoral living. But first, quick parenthesis here. Uh, Verse 1, and specifically this phrase in verse 1, denying the master who bought them, confronts us with a significant theological issue. At first glance, it seems to teach that Jesus bought these false teachers, that they were saved, and subsequently they rejected the master. They walked away from the faith and are no longer saved or believers. And this raises the question, can believers lose their salvation? Now, I admit that if we had just this text... You might lean that way. The wording seems relatively clear. However, when we interpret Scripture, we have to interpret Scripture within the context not just of the book we're reading, but the whole Bible, the theological context. And there are many, many, many statements that teach clearly that believers, genuine believers who trust in Jesus as their Savior, will be kept by God. They will persevere to the end and be glorified. We can multiply lots of examples give you a few, two of them. Uh, John 6.40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So notice that all those who believe are also going to be raised up on the last day. Believe, 
resurrection. Right? True faith um, means salvation on the last day. John 6.40. Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The God who initiates salvation will indeed certainly bring it to its fruition uh, when Jesus returns. We can multiply examples like this, as I say. So there are texts that clearly affirm that those who genuinely trust in Jesus will in fact be saved. This one, though, seems to be saying the opposite. How do we understand it? Well, uh, one possibility that I won't explain or explore because I don't have time Uh, But one approach to this passage is to take the word bought as referring to something less than salvation, a rescue or deliverance of some kind that falls short of full salvation. That's a possibility, uh, but I don't have time to make the case for that, so I'll just make you aware of it. Uh, Second, simpler option is that Peter is, in fact, using language that describes believers, language of salvation, but that he is describing these false teachers not as they actually are, but as they appear. Keep in mind that these false teachers didn't come from outside of the church. Where did they arise? They arose from among you. So they were outwardly connected to the church. Furthermore, they professed faith in Jesus Christ. As verse 20 and and, uh, verses later in the chapter demonstrate, They professed faith in Jesus. They were outwardly connected to the church. And so Peter describes them according to the way they appear, not in terms of what they are. The church is, after all, the community that has indeed been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And they are outwardly connected to that community. And so they are described in terms of the way they appear according to their profession, but not in accordance with the spiritual reality. One further consideration that gives plausibility to this reading is to recognize that the New Testament doesn't speak of two categories of people, believer and unbeliever, but of three. Believer, unbeliever, and unbeliever who professes faith and is outwardly connected to the church, and in fact a recipient at some level of real blessings from Jesus that are nevertheless not saving. As an example of that third category, look at Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Yet they they declared that he is Lord. They were even performing miracles. And yet they didn't know him. Christ didn't know them. There was no relationship. When you understand that that third category exists in Scripture, I think it helps to make sense of why New Testament writers can use language that at one level applies to genuine believers and stretch it to apply even to those who are not genuine believers but still connected to the church outwardly. So I think that's one potential solution to this passage. Though admittedly, it's not, a, not an easy um, verse uh, to reconcile. But the important thing to note here, what I want to underscore is the fact that we can deny Jesus, not simply, as I said, through doctrinal error, 
speaking lies, but through living lies. That's what these false teachers were doing. That's what they were teaching others to do as well. If you come to church on Sunday, week after week, and tears flow from your eyes, and you sing your heart out, and you rejoice in Jesus, and you're deeply moved, but Monday through Saturday, there is complete oblivion to the moral requirements of Jesus Christ. You are living in rebellion and sexual impurity and selfishness, pride, greed, every kind of vice. No pangs of conscience. That Sunday experience is meaningless. You're self-deceived. You are denying Jesus Christ through your immoral conduct. Those who really are trusting in Jesus as their Savior are walking in increasing light and obedience. You can deny Jesus, the false teachers deny Jesus, through their lifestyle. That's number three. Number four, they'll be partly successful, false teachers. Look at verse two. Many will follow their sensuality, their sexual immorality. They're going to be able to draw a crowd. They're going to get people to follow them. We can see partly why they opened the doors wide to sexual impurity. You can see why people like that would be popular in our culture. Oh no, the Bible doesn't really restrict sexual fulfillment to marriage. That's a misinterpretation. Actually, God's okay with it all. But we get why these kinds of people would be applauded and welcomed and why their interpretation of the Bible would be accepted. They're giving us what we want, right? Uh, But note this. So they'll be successful in wooing and seducing people with their false teaching, many people even. What that should warn us of is don't assume that because something's big, a church or a ministry, therefore it is of God. We sometimes reason like this. Look how big it is. Look at all of the people flocking there. That's, not, that's really not the issue. The issue is, is the truth of God in all of its fullness, especially at those points that contradict the prevailing values of the culture, being proclaimed at this institution? Is the word of God being purely and faithfully taught? That's the measuring stick. And if it isn't, people are coming, praise God. But mere numbers don't prove anything. False teachers are also able to draw crowds under the banner of being a Christian church. Next characteristic, so as they're drawing these people to their, not just false teaching, but to their impure lifestyle, as a result of all of that, here's the next characteristic, because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. The watching world will associate these people whose lives are so immoral and they're denying Jesus through their lifestyle with the church. As far as the watching world can tell, these people are Christians. But they're saying one thing and doing another. They're hypocrites. And so the result of false teaching is that it alienates observers on the outside. Oh, those Christians, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. The way of truth is blasphemed and slandered. If you're here this morning and you're not a professing Christian, this verse may may be helpful to you. One reason people reject Christ and uh, the truth of the gospel is because they're put off by Christian hypocrisy. Those Christians always with their high moral standards, but in practice they're frequently as moral as everybody else. Don't, Don't talk to me about Christianity. Like If you've been alienated from Christianity because of that, it's just possible that you've encountered counterfeit Christians who say they're Christians, but are actually doing what the false teachers in this passage are doing, denying Jesus through their lifestyle. So don't let that put you off. You may not have encountered the real thing. Now, 
Does this mean that genuine believers don't sin and fall short? No, we sin and fall short. But here's the difference. We own it. We're grieved by it. We don't want to continue in our immorality and sin. We want to change. We grieve over our sin. We confess our sin, and we seek to put it to death. That's the difference between a genuine believer and unbeliever. So it could be that you've been put off not by the real thing, but by a counterfeit. Just consider that. And finally, last characteristic, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. They want to take what's in your wallet, put it in theirs. And they'll say whatever they need to say to get your money. Prosperity preachers, just plant the seed of faith for $500 and the Lord's downpour of blessings will come and you'll get millions, right? That kind of thing. Whatever they need to say to get your money, uh, characteristic of false teachers. Do they want my money? Now, I want to be careful here because as a pastor, you know, church leadership calls you to be faithful to Jesus and support the ministry financially. I want to sharply distinguish that from the kind of nefarious uh, desire to take your money. It's legitimate. Paul does this in you know, 2 Corinthians. He tells the churches of Corinth, hey, give us money for the saints in uh, Judea. And we have accountability structures to make sure it's all above board. Um, so th- that's legitimate. But as we take a step back from this and recognize false teachers are coming, they're going to be hard to spot, they're going to lead people astray, their teaching leads to destruction, what seems to be clear is that we need to be a vigilant, wary, and wise people. We understand that God calls us to be good, large-hearted, soft-hearted, but we less commonly realize that we are called to be not just soft-hearted, but tough-minded. Good as Sam Gamgee wise as Gandalf, the wizard. (laughs) Wise as Solomon, good as Tabitha from the book of Acts, whose charity to the widows, charitable contributions were widely known. We need goodness, but we we also need wise, penetrating eyes that see through nonsense and call a thing for what it is. What does Jesus say? That his people should be wise as serpents. Didn't see that coming. From Jesus, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Some of us have the innocence, we need the wisdom. Some of us have the wisdom, we need the innocence, right? Uh, But the point is that we need to be able to not judge by appearances, but according to Scripture. At a basic level, we do what um, Chuck invited us to do last week, which is know God's Word. Appropriate it. How else can you grow wise if not through the counsel of God in Scripture? Feed on it. Delight in it. Uh, But secondly, here's something that I would challenge you to do. Cultivate thoughtfulness. Think. We all drift towards intellectual passivity, don't we? And God is no more a fan of intellectual laziness than he is a fan of any other kind of laziness. But we tend to drift there, right? Thinking's hard. It's exhausting, especially at the end of a long, hard day. One basic thing I would challenge you to do is interrogate your experiences in the world in light of Scripture. Regularly ask the question, what does God say about this? Let's do this this week. When you watch a show with your spouse or you watch a movie with your kids or whatever, Instead of just shutting off the TV and going to bed, take a moment to say, hey, what did we see? What themes, what ideas in that show were consistent with Scripture? And what was maybe, maybe it contained a kernel of truth, but also falsehood? Get in the habit of thinking 
reflecting Christianly and biblically about the world, teach your kids to do that. I mean, the only way you get, grow in wisdom is by practicing, by actually trying to make sense of the world in light of Scripture. So yes, know the, know the Word, but actually get in the habit of interrogating the world in light of Scripture. Do that. One small step forward. If you watch TV, as I'm sure many of you do, uh, afterward, try to engage you know, the people you've watched it with in, with in some conversation or, or do something like that. Cultivate a, a reflective, thoughtful posture towards the world um, as, as a way of cultivating the kind of wisdom Jesus calls us to. So those are, their false, those are the false teachers. Now, what is their destiny and indeed the destiny of the ungodly? Peter tells us in no uncertain terms, verses 4 through 10. He's made the claim that their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. God's burning wrath and judgment is coming for the false teachers and indeed all the ungodly. And Peter substantiates that claim in verse 3 with Old Testament examples in verses 4 through 10. There are two themes that run through these verses. God's judgment on the wicked and his preservation of the righteous. The structure here is, is re relatively clear. There is one big conditional sentence, if then. The if part of the sentence begins at verse 4 and runs all the way to verse 9. If God did this, if he did this, if he did this. And then we get to the climax in verse 9. Then, here's the, here's the implications. Then he knows how to punish the wicked, hold them under punishment until the day of judgment, uh, and then he knows how to rescue the righteous. God judges sinners. Example one, God didn't spare the angels when they sinned, uh, but confined them in chains of gloomy darkness, and they're being held there. They're confined by God until the great day of judgment. What act of disobedience is he referring to? Not sure. Uh, it's likely, however, that he's referring to the fall of angelic beings and Satan at the dawn of creation. The second example he uses is the example of the flood. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. God saved one family from the ancient world, Noah's family, and God wiped out everybody else. You can't read scripture and miss the fact that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. He is pure through and through. And God abhors wickedness. And precisely because he is good, he judges it. Peter says, remember the flood? Wiped out everybody but a family. Last example of judgment, verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Fire fell from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness, their contempt for God, their violation of his law, and they were incinerated. And Peter is saying, look at that. That's who God is, and that is a foretaste of what is to come at the end of human history for all those who have held God in contempt. 
That's where human history is going for everybody who doesn't have Jesus as their Savior. The conclusion of the matter is stated in verse 9. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. There is a day where God will punish all human wickedness. Every thought, every word, every act that contradicts his perfect and holy standard and character will be judged. There is eternal, everlasting separation from God toward which all things are headed. If you don't understand that, you don't understand the character of God or our desperate need for the gospel and our desperate need for a savior. God is a holy God, he is morally pure, and he punishes the wicked. That's not something to be explained away or embarrassed about, it's part of his glory. And after all, isn't that what we all really want? That this nightmare of a world, the endless kaleidoscope of horrors that we see, that there would be a God in heaven who abhors all of that and would bring down judgment on all of that and put wrongs to right? Isn't that the sort of God that we ultimately long for? And that's precisely the kind of God that Scripture declares him to be. Now this is, when you talk about God's judgment, it seems implausible to modern ears for a variety of reasons. One reason it seems implausible is because the starting point, the given for many modern people, is the fact that we are individuals who are free to determine the course of our own life, to determine the direction we want to go, what right and wrong is for us, the kinds of religious activities that we enjoy. The given, the starting point as we think about our place in the world for modern man is the human, the individual who has absolute freedom to determine the course of their life as long as perhaps they don't impinge on anybody else. That's the starting point. Uh, We see that posture, that attitude in that that book that was popular has since been turned into a movie, if I'm not mistaken, by Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, Pray, Love. Probably seen this on the shelves, Barnes and Noble or something. Uh, She writes, you have every right to cherry pick when it comes to moving your spirit and finding your peace in God. Notice the posture. There are no external norms. You decide what works for you. Dabble in a little bit of Buddhism, a little Christianity, put it all together in an edifying and therapeutic patchwork, you know, your own religious preferences. But notice the starting point, the self, and the freedom of the self to determine what it wants. I'll design God in my image. Now, if you start there, if that's your given, your starting line, then you're going to view all biblical teaching on God as judge as God as a sort of cosmic bully, using his superior power to inflict his will on people, even though he has no right to. Or to say it another way, our mental picture of the world is that there are two kingdoms. God has his kingdom. He's king there. But I have my kingdom, and I'm king over here. And how dare he invade my kingdom? He doesn't have the right to do that. And so it it strikes us as wrong. But the problem is our starting point. It's an unbiblical and false starting point. There aren't two kingdoms. There's one kingdom with one king. We need to begin where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God alone is eternal, has life in himself, and summons all things into existence and bestows upon his creatures all that is good. We were made by God, we are creatures, we belong to him, and we owe him unqualified and complete obedience. God's ways are good. To be truly human, 
and to put God at the center of your life are the same thing. His ways are good and life-giving. We ought to submit to his ways and give thanks to him. But instead, instead of honoring him as our king, we have rebelled. The evil underneath every evil is that we have rejected God. We refuse to acknowledge his authority over us. We refuse to put him at the center. And so we are cosmic rebel, rebels rightly under the judgment of God. To change the picture again, there is one kingdom with one king, and we are the disgruntled rebels trying to take that good king off the throne and put ourselves there. That is reality. And God stands against us in judgment. So you're here this morning, and you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a sober warning to you. Whatever else you need in life, it's not health or a happier marriage. You need salvation. You need Jesus. And if you are a believer this morning, this should rouse you, wake you up from your slumber. There's people who are going to be separated from Jesus eternally. They're going to hell. And God's means of saving them is witness to the gospel. At the same time, even as it pricks us to be more energetic in evangelism, it also causes us to stand back and wonder. What should astonish us about God is not that he judges sinners, that he actually saves sinners. Grace is indeed amazing, unexpected. At the high price of his son's life, God has washed away our sins. He has met our deepest need. The response should be praise and gratitude. Praise be to God, the infinite cost of Jesus Christ. We who were once under this judgment and facing destruction have been reconciled to him. Indeed, that's the other theme of this passage. Peter speaks here of Noah, who was not destroyed in the flood. By the way, Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints are, by faith in the promises of God. Lot, Noah, they were saved because they believed these promises. They belonged to God. The wrath and judgment that human beings face at the end of history for the believer has already been put on Jesus Christ. At the cross, the dark clouds of judgment that crackled with lightning were fully poured out on Jesus, and therefore we look forward to the bright sunlight of God's welcome at the end of life, not to judgment. God knows how to rescue his people. But Peter actually adds something more than just that. Verse 9 the Lord knows how to rescue the ungodly from trials. The word translated trials can mean temptation. Uh, trial is the idea that the sufferings, the hardships of life that we face, they challenge our faith. And what Peter is saying here is God holds us by the hand through this life and he brings us safely through the trials that we face. Those things that would destroy us spiritually, God stands by our side, rescues us again and again until we come safely home. The world is an unstable, fickle place. There's chaos. There are false teachers that Peter is talking about. But he wants to remind the church and the people of God, in all of that chaos, there is a foundation. There is a rock that never moves. And that is the Lord, whose faithfulness is unflinching and unshakable and who walks with his people through the challenges of life till they're brought home. He intends to encourage us through this. Stop looking at the miserable things around you. Look up and know that the, the Father in heaven will bring you to himself. He will protect you. He will shield you. 
doesn't mean that you won't experience suffering and pain. It just means that he will bring you safely through that suffering to the other side. The key to living with confidence, cheerfulness, peace in a crazy world and the storms of life is having this perspective. Knowing the steadfast love and faithfulness of the Lord. When we have that, when we see that, we can say with the psalmist, Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Even when chaos breaks forth into the world, God is our refuge and strength. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we have seen your faithfulness to us again and again, and we give thanks that it will never falter or fail. Lord, we lift up our eyes to you and acknowledge that our salvation in every sense comes from you. Amen.